This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. George R.R. R. Martin and more than a dozen other authors now suing OpenAI, creator of ChatGPT. Martin joining forces with authors like Jody Pico, John Grisham, Ellen Hildebrand, Michael Connolly, and David Baldacci to take on the AI giant, claiming it used their books to train its ChatGPT bot without their permission and without compensation. The intersection between copyright and generative AI has been very much in the spotlight in recent months as services such as ChatGPT and Stability AI face a range of lawsuits brought by a wide cross-section of artists, authors, and others in the creative sector. Now, these lawsuits may rest on a weak foundation from a copyright law perspective, but as they make their way through the courts, and as governments, such as the Canadian government, consults on potential copyright reforms, the issue is now very much on the policy agenda. Andres Gudams is a reader in intellectual property law at the University of Sussex and has written extensively on this issue. He joins me on the podcast to explain how copyright intersects with generative AI, to take stock of the various cases, and to unpack a recent decision that dismissed most of a high-profile class action against a trio of AI companies. Andres, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, uh, Michael, for the invitation. Well, no, the issue of generative AI and copyright has been really heating up in, in the last number of months, certainly. You know, ChatGPT about a year ago, really, I think, put it in the public spotlight. We're seeing some countries consult on the issue. That's happening in my own country of Canada, where there is currently ongoing a, a copyright consultation on a bunch of the issues associated with generative AI. Uh, and we've seen a whole series of lawsuits, and that's really what uh, I was hoping to focus on today, is we've seen a number of these class action lawsuits, often involving some pretty prominent authors and creators. You know, I, I want to unpack a little bit what these lawsuits involve, where they stand. Uh, we've got one in particular that kind of that sparked this episode, um, which has been largely rejected, although it might continue. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll, we'll have a chance to get through all of that. But before before we do some of that, um, you know, there's been a lot of concern, of course, that that's arisen around generative AI and copyright, both in some certain respects with the inputs and the outputs, the inputs on the large language models, what goes into so-called teach these systems, and then the outputs uh, in terms of what is produced by these systems. Can you can you talk a bit about both of those issues, you know, maybe starting with the inclusion of the works within large language models and you know, what copyright might or might not have to say about that? Uh, yes, sure. Um, large language models like uh, Claude or GPT-4, Llama, some there, there are quite a lot of them now. Um, these require vast amounts of data to be trained. And of course, this training process will depend on each model. There is going to be different ways in which this is achieved. But for language models specifically, um, you require large uh, corpus of text. Um, and this text uh, is going to be divided into what is known as a token. So a token is not a word as such. It is usually uh, three or four letters that uh, come together normally in, in, in a word. So usually there are like two or three tokens per word. Depends on, on 
on each word. Um, it doesn't really matter what the text is, but what mat what matters is that the training process involves it also involves a, something called a transformer, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, so what's happening here is that the model requires all this text and the text uh, extracts the tokens and the tokens, um, you get some form of statistical information of what token follows the next one. Um, so the text obviously comes from all over the web. Um, it makes up, it's usually web scraping, Wikipedia, Reddit, blogs, YouTube transcripts, journal articles, code, and in some cases, full books. Um, in two occasions, uh, the uh, collection of Gutenberg books, uh, the public domain books, uh, and sometimes uh, potentially uh, pirated books, uh, which is uh, has been the subject of some of these cases. So. What happens is that all of these works are copied into a database and this is collected. It's prepared by the uh, machine learning uh, researchers. And then this token information is extracted. And then the training data or the text can be discarded. You don't need it for the model. The resulting model then is data. You could say it's a statistics. It's mostly mathematics, uh, if you want to put it that, that way. and um, most importantly, it does not contain the um, the the actual text. So uh, a trained model is not um, like a collection. Like the, it's not a, like a search engine that is actually drawing uh, information. It is mostly a statistics. Uh, so the corporate question actually comes from the input uh, side is very simple. Um, is all of this copying is copying uh, works, scraping the web for all of this text, is it infringing copyright? Is the inclusion of this uh, an, uh, an infringement of the exclusive rights of the author? Uh, that is in the input phase. In the output phase, the, the copyright question is perhaps a little bit more simple. Um, has one of the exclusive rights of the author been infringed? So is there an output that resembles or substantially copies uh, an input? Um, and that is also uh, the subject of some of the cases. We'll come to those cases in a sec. I just want to, I guess, pause for a sec, because I think you've made a, made a really important point that that isn't often well appreciated. You know, there's been a tendency to, to, to think of the scraping that may take place for the purposes of building a large language model and compare it to a search engine. Uh, but as you point out, a search engine is interested in the, in the text itself. It sounds like this system is really interested in extracting information about the text and the text itself really doesn't play a, a, a significant role at all. It's, it, it isn't learning in the way that we would conventionally think of as learning. Yes, it is. Uh, that is something that it's all often overlooked, and I think that um, it, there is a certain conceit in some of the cases, if I may put it this way, that uh, some text is more important than other text. When it actually, what's happening is that um, the uh, the training of a model is very democratizing in some in some ways. Um, a Reddit post or a tweet or a blog post is potentially as important as a very uh, 
highly rated journal article, let's say, uh, because the, the accuracy is not the objective uh, of language model. Language is the objective of the language model, the, the extraction of this information. So um, something that, that I, I keep seeing in these cases is, oh, my book is so important uh, or my work is so important to this training data that I'm going to sue for copyright infringement where, where um, people that are have a large online presence could, could actually make the same case because it, it's possible that their work is also very prevalent. Um, things like Wikipedia are, are very, very, very prevalent in the training data, uh, not only in the amount of text, but also in the importance that is given to it. Uh, so the training itself it actually gives weights to information and web scraped data tends to have much more of a weight. Uh, it's something that it's always missed, I think. Okay, that's interesting. And, and we've seen that some of those exact claims raised, you're right, by, by certain creators. We see it from the media sector, you know, with this notion that your AI won't be accurate unless you're relying on some of the accurate information. But you seem to suggest that um, there are other, some pretty important alternative factors that actually sort of in term measure the relative importance, so to speak, of, of some of that data. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the inclusion side of what goes into the LLM. We'll come to those cases in just a sec, but uh, just quickly, I suppose there of course are also concerns at times about the output. Some people feeling that what comes out of these systems feels so similar that surely it must be a, a copyright infringement. Can you, can you talk a bit about, you know, how some of that thinking has evolved? Yes. Um, it's it's been quite interesting with the uh, with the cases that uh, they haven't actually managed to produce uh, infringing outputs. Uh, almost no case. The only one that has managed to produce an, a, a potentially similar output has been uh, one of the code cases. Well, I'll explain what which one that is, but uh, which involves a, a, a computer code or source code, uh, but. Really, what we're looking for is whether or not there has been an actual reproduction of text. And there, in some instances, the research has been conducted that some of the models can memorize text. So obviously, it's not copying it. It's like someone memorizing a poem. It usually involves that something that is very popular, like the opening of Moby Dick, the opening of uh, Harry Potter, the opening of some very famous books, and the the model will be able to recite some passages uh, that it has been quite a lot because usually the only way uh, uh, that it looks at some uh, some combination of words is uh, in those texts that that are reproduced quite a lot, um, but. That doesn't mean that uh, it, it's actually reproducing in the sense that it's it's infringing copyright. Uh, what most language models are doing is reproducing or producing an output that is usually a summary of the work. Um, so if you ask for it to uh, reproduce the entirety of, let's say, The Lord of the Rings or uh, Song of Ice and Fire, uh, it's not going to do it. It may recite some passages, uh, but what it can do is provide you with a summary of those books. Um, those summaries uh, are 
just like you would find on Wikipedia or anywhere else. So it's it's not infringing copyright if you summarize a book, for right. example. Okay. All right. It's an important distinction. I think we'll perhaps come to it a bit more when we talk about some of those cases. You've kind of alluded to a few. Can you can you provide a, a bit of a landscape of some of the claims that we've seen out there? You know, what are some of the, the big name cases and roughly where do many of them stand? Yes, that's going to be a difficult one because they're, now they're quite quite a lot. Uh, there are a couple of websites that actually have uh, a list of all of the cases. So let's let's try to class them by subject, but also by claimant. Um, so there is a California law firm um, that has been quite famous in this space. They have brought uh, six different actions. I lose count. Um, now, they brought the first case against GitHub and Microsoft. Uh, this was a, a, a code uh, case. Um, the argument is that uh, Copilot, uh, the uh, code making program by GitHub and Microsoft is infringing copyright of all of the code that has been used to train the system. Then the same law firm brought a case against uh, Midjourney and Instability and DeviantArt. Uh, that's three artists, and I think we'll probably talk uh, about that in more detail later. Then there is uh, one against, uh, there are three cases from writers against OpenAI, Meta, and OpenAI again. And these are different uh, writers, uh, particularly uh, Sarah Silverman uh, is, is involved in, in this one against OpenAI. Um, you could say that they're not going that well, but we'll discuss that potentially a, a bit later. Um, and then there is uh, uh, one regarding images and photographs between Getty Images and Stability AI. And that's a very interesting one because it's being, uh, uh, they're suing both in Delaware and in England. So that that is going to be a, a one to watch. And that is Getty are arguing that uh, Stability used their images to train their artificial intelligence, uh, stable diffusion. Um, then there is another big one between uh, Authors Guild and Meta. Um, I think that this is the one to watch because Authors Guild has a history in this space, particularly uh, they sued Google for Google Books and uh, they lost pretty much. And uh, it was declared that uh, Google's use was fair use. And um, most recently, we have um, a very in another interesting case from uh, Universal and other people in the music industry that have sued OpenAI and Anthropic for infringement in lyrics. So that's another one to watch. It's the first case by the music industry, and it's involving lyrics on large language models. Um, and then there are others. There are a few... Uh, authors, uh, other authors suing, etc., uh, etc. Et but these ones are the most uh, important, I would say. Okay, you weren't kidding. There are there are a <laughs> lot out there. Um, yeah. So I, you know, you, you, I think your your summary is really helpful in identifying, you know, who's behind these cases. It sounds like we really are covering such a wide range of different sorts of content or creativity. What are some of the primary legal claims that they raise? I'm presuming that it's copyright infringement. But, you know, is what what are the sorts of arguments that they've sought to raise in these cases? 
Yes, uh, I think that there are some commonalities in most of the cases. Uh, so at the core of of uh, most of the infringement cases uh, is the argument that whenever a company or a trainer or a researcher is uh, making copies of a work uh, for the purpose of training, they're doing this without authorization, this is copyright infringement. So uh, almost all of them uh, have that claim. Uh, it's, it, therefore, it's in the input phase. Um, some, but not all, contain claims also on outputs. They are claiming that that potentially the, the, the outputs are infringing their copyright. The argument here is a little bit weird. Um, what they're saying is because they haven't been able to produce in almost none of the cases an infringing or potentially infringing output or uh, something that is similar, uh, substantially similar to their words, what the argument in some of the cases has been is, well, every single output that is produced by these language models, by the image uh, uh, models or, or anything else, is a derivative from the inputs. And I think that's, uh, pardon uh, my language, it's a bit bonkers. Um, it, it's, it's just, it, it, it just, I cannot begin to say just how uh, how weird that argument is. Uh, so imagine you're just uh, writing an email using Claude or uh, Bard or ChatGPT. Uh, that means that uh, you're infringing the copyright on my blog posts, for example. It, it, the argument is just makes no sense. So uh, the other claims tend to fall under it sort of ancillary uh, claims. Um, there quite a few of the cases have a, a copyright management information or rights man management information claim. Uh, that is very popular in the US because it usually brings uh, statutory damages. Um, so they're all claiming this. Their argument is that the companies in training have removed rights management information like copyright uh, year and, and author, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that is in itself uh, an infringement of copyright uh, thanks to the WIPO Copyright Treaty and the DMCA. Um, there are other claims of vicarious liability. Some of them are arguing, arguing um, negligence, uh, unfair competition is another popular one. Um, and in the case of Getty Images, it's very interesting. They're also claiming trademark infringement which is the only one of the cases that is both copyright and trademark infringement. But yeah, those are sort of the, the commonalities. Um, okay. One, sorry, just before I forget, um, it's important that we don't have evidence of copying uh, in all of the cases. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, the claims is, uh, the evidence is that, oh, you can summarize my book, therefore you're infringing copyright. That is the evidence.
But there's a, once again a lot there. It's hard to to wrap our heads around all the different sorts of cases and claims. Why don't we narrow down though into a into a particular case? And you, you referenced it a, a few moments ago, uh, but we have seen some developments that really in some ways sparked this this particular episode of this podcast. Uh, that's the case against Stability AI, DeviantArt, and Midjourney. Uh, can you talk a bit about the claims and even more where we're at in the process right now, given that uh, we've had uh, an important ruling? Yes, uh, this is one of those cases brought by, by this California law firm that um, this was um, the second case to be brought. Uh, so it got a lot of attention and it got a lot of press because of that. Uh, so the case is um, it's a class action lawsuit invo involving three artists. Um, these artists were in the training data, and they knew that they were in the training data because there is a website uh, where you can check if your uh, uh, images, your pictures uh, have been used in training, uh, particularly for stability AI uh, in a data set, uh, a German data set called Lion, uh, L-A-I-O-N. Um, this website is called Have I Been Trained? And people can look for whichever images. So three artists uh, went to the website and found some of their images had been used in the training. Um, they uh, thought that this was potentially copyright infringement and uh, this law firm brought them together and uh, uh, they sued for copyright infringement. But also, again, um, rights management information removal, uh, vicarious liability, unfair competition, negligence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the whole thing. Um, the the claims um, pretty much were as follows. Uh, the the claimants say, "All right, our images are in the training data. Therefore, uh, you made copies of our work without authorization, without compensation. Uh, it that is copyright infringement." The other argument is. Um, these models are keeping copies of our works in the model. Uh, what the image generators do is like a collage, and this is actually in the complaint, and they say this is a collage. So it takes images, it takes bits and pieces from each of the images and the training data, and it puts them together. Uh, like a collage. Um, and they said, again, this is the argument that they make is that all of the inputs are, uh, oh, sorry, all of the outputs are derivatives of all of the inputs. Um, and there are a couple of other claims here and there, but again, those are the main ones. All right. So those are the claims. We have had some progress in the courts. How How has the court addressed some of those claims? When I first read the complaint, I was uh, flabbergasted of, of how uh, bad it was from a technical perspective. I thought, this is not going to fly. This is not going to go well. Um, because I think I, I think that they were getting the technology completely wrong. Um, so uh, the claimants didn't make it easy for them. Uh, they make actually made it easy for the judge to dismiss uh, some of the claims, particularly because um, in in a in a in a really uh, weird uh, move, um, the uh, two of the artists had not registered the copyright. Uh, 
to the U.S. Copyright Office. And of course, in the U.S., that is a requirement if you're going to sue for copyright infringement. So in the case of two artists, the judge just uh, dismissed the case uh, with prejudice. That is, they cannot go back uh, and redo. Um, only one of the artists remains. Uh, most of the claims were struck down, again, because of lack of evidence. Um, first, uh, there was no evidence presented that any copyright management information had been removed from any of her images. There was no inf uh, evidence presented that there, are any of the, there were any outputs that were produced. So there was no reproduction. There was no evidence that... Um, her rights of publicity or there was some fair competition, et cetera, et cetera. So the judge dismissed all of this uh, with leave to amend. Um, but I find it difficult to believe that most of these are going to be amended. The one claim that remains is uh, that the, the input claim, pretty much. Uh, her pictures are in were used in the, uh, in the training data, therefore it's copyright infringement. And that is potentially the only claim that is going to be uh, to go forward. So at, at this stage, we are um, at uh, the process where the stage where the judge has dismissed a few of the claims, uh, they're going to have uh, some time, I think it's a month to amend the, um, the claims. And then potentially the case is going to go forward and it's going to explore a very simple corporate question, which is whether or not this is fair use or not. Uh, is the use of these images without authorization, is it copyright infringement or is it fair use? And uh, we don't know what's going to be the result of that yeah. one. Okay, so still uh, there's still one element there, but but many of the aspects of a case that you're right did attract considerable amount of attention i recall when it was first launched some of the coverage that that took place around it have, have been tossed out for now you know you you mentioned a wide range of of other cases do you, do you see at this stage and i realize each case is going to be going to stand on its own merits but do you do you do you see these moving in a, in a somewhat similar direction you already highlighted that some of the kinds of claims that you've seen just that don't make a whole lot of sense uh is, is that where we're headed or perhaps another way to think about it what are some of the real pressure points where you think that they are likely to proceed in, in a significant way through the courts? Yes, I think that um, this uh, California law firm, the one that did five or six different cases, they spread themselves too thin. Um, it's clear that they're not copyright lawyers. Uh, there's uh, that can be said. It, it's just the, the, the fact that they filed a, a lawsuit without registration. That's uh, that's a rookie mistake. So I think that those cases continue to be quite weak. And I would maybe they'll make it to trial, maybe not. But I think that the the, the law firm itself has proven that it, it, it's um, it's outgunned by some of the other lawyers. Uh, that uh, particularly the large companies can produce uh, really good representation. So at least the, those, the closer of cases, I don't see them having a lot of future. The more serious ones are the ones that, of course, have better representation and they can produce uh, better arguments. Um, particularly Getty, Authors Guild, and uh, the music industry, I can see those uh, going... Uh, further than uh, uh, 
than all of these other ones. Um, the problem that they have, however, is similar to what is the problem in these other cases. And the problem is that they have yet to produce an infringing output. So their, their, their issue is uh, twofold, I think. Um, if you're only going to argue, uh, or if the, all these going, all these ongoing cases are going to argue, to rest on the input phase, that is a much easier fair use, fair dealing. Uh, I think, for for example, in, in Europe, you could have fair dealing for things like temporary copying, uh, but um, in the US cases, I think that they're going to have a better fair use case because um, what is happening with the training is that a copy is made of a work is put in a large corpus of, of, of other works and it doesn't really have commercial value or commercial competition uh, with the original. So the copies are made internally. They're not shared with... Uh, or they're not published, they're not shared to the public, they're not communicated to the public in any way. So it's usually an internal process to extract information. And that is going to produce a, a product, a model that does not compete directly, for the most part, with the works of the, uh, of the claimants. So I think that even if there is a declaration that there was copyright infringement, I can see the damages being negligible, particularly because uh, I think I've pointed this out in, in a few occasions. Um, uh, training a model is not an, uh, uh, an exclusive right of the author. So you cannot stop people from, from learning from your works. So in the case of, for example, books or, or, uh, or, or text, uh, you cannot stop people from if they have legitimate access to to a copy of your work, to make uh, to extract information from that, and that means that potentially the damages for this it would be the price of one copy of a book, for example. Which I think that is going to be an interesting one. All right, so so I mean that's that's a that's a really nice look at at some of the claims and frankly, the weakness associated with a lot of those claims, which really, I guess, leads me to, to my last question. And that is, you know, is the courts the right place for this? Now it, it's unsurprising that we, that we see these class actions and based on some of the analysis you just described, perhaps somewhat unsurprising that we're seeing some of them knocked down as well. I mean, essentially much of the activity is not infringing uh, when, when you get right down to it, that, that suggests that, that we may well see conversations that move in a different direction. And it won't be about what takes place in the courts, but rather to say, well, if the law doesn't cover this, then change the law. You know, where do you see this playing out? Do you see it becoming uh, an issue that, that does get resolved by the courts and that there are some limitations posed here? Is it more likely that we see this uh, play out through regulation in different kinds of jurisdictions where there is yet another battle in a sense over copyright reform this time uh, over over works and and their inter interaction interface with AI. Uh, yes, uh, this is a really difficult one because um, it may depend on 
on a, a few factors. I think that uh, there are already some technical solutions that are emerging. Um, so uh, in the case of art, for example, there are a few tools where artists can sort of poison their artworks um, so that they're not trained by an artificial intelligence. Uh, there is a growing number of uh, opt-outs where people are using sort of an equivalent to uh, uh, robots.txt uh, that is present in, in most websites where you can tell the AI uh, not to scrape your website. Uh, quite a few um, press organizations particularly have been doing this already. Uh, the Guardian, for example, removed itself from uh, the common crawl, um, which is one of these crawls, uh, web crawls that have been used heavily in the training of some of the models. So there are some technical aspects uh, and, and practices that are emerging. Uh, there is already, uh, some of the companies are starting to say, okay, um, if you want to opt out, we'll remove you from future training. Or uh, you will. there are also some technical tools where you can potentially remove existing works from, uh, sorry, some works from existing models. So we're seeing potentially technical solutions emerging that could uh, bring us forward instead of relying on on, on some of these cases. Um, I think also there is potentially going to be quite a lot of negotiation uh, taking place where some companies or some content creators are going to say, all right, we want uh, to enter into agreement with you. We provide you access to our uh, works and in exchange you can probably give us a licensing agreement with so that we can use uh, some of your technology for free or reduce price or something like that. So I can see a, a, a quite a few uh, ways of uh, where this can uh, play out. Um, I keep thinking uh, back to the early days of the internet. Um, new technologies usually come together with a large number of copyright infringement cases. That was the case with peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, uh, with the early internet, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually things sort of settled down. Um, and I think that it may be a combination of technology, uh, common practices, but also uh, potentially um, just, re just regulation as well. Yeah. All right, that's I mean that that's interesting. We we first got to know each other during the, those earlier times, and I have to admit that as we've gone through this, as we've worked through this conversation, um, I can't help but think back to some of those times where we did see, as you suggest, a spate of lawsuits, all sorts of legislative reform, and while some of that continued to to play out. Things ultimately did settle down through, I guess, a combination of, of some of the cases, sometimes legislation, and sometimes the practical reality of where the technology and some of the business models went. It's not possible for industries to emerge or to continue uh, with constant litigation. We've seen this over and over and over again. Even though there is an incentive for some of the content creators to continue to try to maximize their profits, um, Usually, what happens is that the technology tends to win out because people find it useful. And if people find it useful and they're using uh, the, the technology and the search engines or, or um, 
in this case, the large language models. And it's not going to be in the best interest of the public to continue with all of this eternal litigation. I think that we'll probably see four or five years of some some of these cases sort of playing themselves out. And eventually we'll get a, a, a strong declaration either way. All right. Well, I mean, this is definitely an area that I think in many ways is going to dominate much of the copyright discussion uh, in the coming years. I was uh, part of an AI conference that was put on here at the University of Ottawa. And the, the comment that was made at one point was that copyright is interesting again, in in part because of, uh, in large measure, because of some of these kinds of issues. So there's going to be a lot happening. You've done a fabulous job, I think, unpacking where where some of this stands and perhaps we'll have a chance to, to come back and, and revisit how some of this started to play out in the months ahead. Uh, so, Andres, thank you so much for for taking the time to to join me on the podcast and talk a bit about uh, copyright uh, and generative AI. Thanks very much again for the invitation. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.